Well, good morning again. My name is Mike, and I'm one of the other leaders here at Kettlebrook. If you have, we haven't had a chance to get to know one another. Um, so, what's going on tonight? What's uh, what's being shown? Yeah, so the Oscars, right? The Oscars. Is, any, any guys planning on watching the Oscars, even though they don't have a host this year? Okay. We, we, we love in our family watching the Oscars and, uh, it's more of a, of a practice and like cultural anthropology for us. Just kind of watch what other people are watching and, and deem it to be great and everything like that. But there's actually another, um, award ceremony that went on this weekend. And, uh, this, this award ceremony is called the Raspberry Awards. Any of you guys ever hear this before? The Razzies, as they're called. This is the uh, awards that Hollywood uh, kind of inflicts upon itself for the worst in filmmaking. Okay? So they went on yesterday, actually. I don't know who the award winners were. But it was, it was uh, thought up by a couple of UCLA film graduates and these guys who are kind of insiders in the industry. And they took it upon themselves to, to kind of give these Razzies awards. So you have a picture of, of the Razzies up there. So they get a raspberry, and, and raspberry is, is used in the most derogatory term. Raz, you know what a raspberry is? It's what you used to do as a kid. Your friends, you go, you know, that's a raspberry. So, so that's, that's the, the raspberry awards. And, um, and so it's just, kinda, it's, it's just kind of when the insiders in the film industry kind of pass judgment on each other and say, you know what, you didn't get it right. You didn't fail. You, you didn't live up to your expectations. You essentially failed in what we, as insiders, hoped that you would accomplish. Okay? There's, a, there's a whole genre of literature in the Old Testament that is essentially uh, raspberry awards. There's a whole, whole group of people who uh, were kind of given the whole task of handing out uh, raspberry awards to Israel. They're called the prophets. Okay, and, and the prophets were called by God to essentially let the nation of Israel know when they didn't meet God's expectations, when they didn't live up to what uh, God's ideals had been for them, when they essentially failed to be the people that God intended for them to be. And they let Israel know in no uncertain terms when they have fallen short of what God intended for them. The question is this, is that when you get a Razzie award from a prophet, (laughs) when a messenger of the living God comes to you and essentially says, you've fallen short, you didn't get it right, there's a huge discrepancy and disconnection between who you are and who God calls you to be. When you get that message, how do you respond? What is the appropriate response for Israel? In that situation, what what would be the appropriate response for us if we were to hear clearly and categorically from the living God a message of disapproval and denunciation of criticism and condemnation? How how would we respond? How how do we respond in that situation? Today, Daniel is going to give us a picture of how to appropriately and correctly respond when we get 
a Razzie from the Lord. When we get a message from him that says, you know what? You, you haven't measured up to what I intended you to be. When Yahweh comes to us and says, you've fallen short, you've missed the mark, you've failed to be the people that I've called you to be in the world. And the only fitting response when we get a message from that, like that from God, is to repent. Is to repent. And that's exactly what Daniel does in Daniel chapter 9. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. You'll find that on page 633. And what Daniel's going to teach us to do is, is if, figuratively, if not literally, to just what does it look like to just fall on our knees and fall on our faces before the living God and say, You're right. We haven't measured up to be the people that you've called us to be. And uh, if you're here and you're visiting with us this morning, um, just want to let you know, kind of, th- th- this, is, this is really not a message for, for visitors. We're glad you're here. Uh, but you're, you're going to love this this morning because what Daniel is going to teach us how to do is how do we, as the people of God, inside the church, be honest about our shortfalls and about our failings as the people of God. So um, the scary thing is this, is that as we close in on the, first, the end of the first quarter of the 21st century, this is a skill of repentance and confession that by and large we have forgotten how to do as the people of God. And, and this is appalling because as evangelicals, have you noticed, we just keep making the news for all the wrong reasons. How many of you heard about the report that came out about the Southern Baptists this past week? And, and, and we, we need to recognize that, that we here in the evangelical church, or what we consider to be evangelical church, we're no better than anyone else. We're no better than what's happening in the Catholic church. We are really in a mess, in a sorry state of affairs. We have serious problems. But if we're ever going to have any impact, okay, in our city, in our, in our county, in our world, in years to come, and for the generations that are going to follow us, we need to learn how to pray this prayer that Daniel shows for us today. It's one of the most powerful prayers that we can pray as the people of God. And it's, it's interesting to me, because if you look throughout history, and you look at the times at when God has really, really moved throughout history, when he's moved in powerful and profound ways, when he's poured out his spirit upon America or upon other countries, he always begins not with people outside the church. Do you know who he begins with? He begins with people inside the church. He begins with people like us getting right and getting on our faces before God and repenting and confessing of our, our own sins. And first he begins with us, purifying us, and then he begins to pour out his spirit upon the people outside the church. This has always been how God has operated. And so if we want to see something like that happen again, then we need to learn this lost art and this lost skill of repentance, which is why we really need to desperately read Daniel chapter 9. So I just want to kind of tee up this with the first three verses here. This is kind of set in the context. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler of the Babylonian kingdom. Okay, so now we got the Medo-Persian empire 
ruling what was the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Okay, so this is kind of the realization that Daniel's come to, that, that they're going to be taken into exile and it's going to be at least 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Okay? So we've been talking all about this guy named Daniel, about what does it look like to live with integrity in the midst of adversity. And we've been looking at all sorts of incredible things that Daniel has to teach us. But one of the main things that we've come across is the fact that as followers of Jesus Christ, we actually have dual citizenship. Okay? We have, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, you have dual citizenship. You are probably an American citizen, okay, which is convenient, comes in handy, okay. But you have another citizenship as well. And you have a higher citizenship with a higher authority and a higher calling. And that's the citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And oftentimes, the values and the priorities of the kingdom of heaven will come into conflict with the values and priorities of this world. And those two worlds come into conflict often. And Daniel is teaching us what does it look like to navigate the tension of living in the reality of those two worlds. And more often than not, we need to navigate those tensions of those two competing worldviews, which is exactly what Daniel had to do 26 Hundred years ago, you know the story. Daniel and his friends were taken away by King Nebuchadnezzar. They were Jews growing up in Babylon, so they had they were in this pagan culture, and they had to to figure out what were they able to do, what were they not able to do, and um, and what's very interesting is that this is exactly what God has always said what happened to Israel. He said way back in Deuteronomy 28 that if the Israelites ever failed to be the people of God, to worship Him as God. And to be faithful to him and to not give themselves into idolatry and to all the wickedness of the nations around him, that he would take them away and take them out of the land that they had given them. And this is exactly the situation that they have found themselves in, in Daniel. And then the whole run up to Jerusalem's fall, God is faithful to bring prophet after prophet after prophet to the nation of Israel to warn them of their impending judgment upon them. But they fail to listen to them. And so this is the situation that they are. And so Daniel understands from Jeremiah the prophet that they're going to be there up to 70 years. So this is probably the passage that Daniel has read in Jeremiah the prophet. Just bring this up in January. This is from Jeremiah chapter 24. He says, And though the Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, you have not listened or paid attention. So this is Jeremiah speaking to Israel, who's being taken away into captivity by their, by their enemies. They said, turn now, the prophets, turn now, each of you from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land the Lord you gave to your ancestors forever and ever. Do not follow other gods and serve and worship them. Do not arouse my anger with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. But you did not listen to me. Okay? He's like, you didn't listen to me, declares the Lord. And you have aroused my anger with what your hands have made, and you have brought harm to yourselves. Essentially, what the prophets are doing is they're giving Israel a raspberry. They're giving her a Razzie Award. They're like, you guys haven't listened to me. You failed to be the people that I've called you to be. And then what it says, he says this. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north. And my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Babylon, declares the Lord. 
And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. And I will completely destroy them and make, an ob- make them an object of horror and scorn and of everlasting ruin. I will banish them from them the sounds of joy and of gladness, the sounds of bride and gr- bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon. How many years? Seventy years. Seventy years. And this is the realization that Daniel has come to, is that it's going to be 70 years that they're going to be in, in Babylon. So this is quite, quite probably the passage that he came across in Jeremiah. And it's in response to reading those verses, it's in response to this message, the fact that it's because of their sins that they're, they were taken away into captivity, that Daniel gives us this classic pattern for a prayer of corporate repentance and confession. And, and, if, and if we're ever going to be the people of God who wants to get us out of the mess that we have found ourselves in today, then we need to take note of this prayer. And we need to take notes of the pattern that Daniel gives us. So this is what I want to do. is just kind of walk us through some of the things that Daniel does. The first thing... Is, is that he does is say that remember who he's addressing in verses three and four. He says this: I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant of love with all who love Him and obey His commands. Okay, so he's, he remembers who he is addressing him here. He essentially reminding himself uh, who he's talking to, and by appealing to the character of God, it is revealed in Scripture again and again. In Exodus and Deuteronomy and all throughout the Psalms, that just talk and extol all about God's character, who he is, what he is like. And Daniel borrows from that language that he knows so well in the scriptures, and he reminds himself who he actually is addressing here. This is why it's so important for us as the people of God to be taking in regularly a consistent and persistent diet of the scriptures, of the word of God. So that we can know who God is and how he's revealed himself. There's no way that we're going to even know the God that we're addressing if we're not reading how he has revealed himself to us in scriptures. In Exodus 34, 5-7, Moses says this. It says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there uh, with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love for thousands, and forgiving wickedness, wickedness, rebellion, sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. This is God revealing his character to his people. And Daniel was no doubt familiar with passages like these. And he leverages that knowledge of who God is and he reminds himself who he's addressing. And so when we go before God in prayer, we need to remember who it is that we're addressing. The next thing he does is that he takes ownership of what he's done. Verse 5, he says this. He says, We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and we have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to you or your servants, the prophets who spoke your name, spoken your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the Lord. And he goes on and on and on. Do you notice what Daniel is doing here? He's, he's doing some very interesting things. 
The, the first thing that he does is that he is very inclusive in his language here in his prayer. Well, notice this is this. We have sinned. We have been wicked. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We, we, we. Daniel puts himself squarely in the middle of Israel and their fault and their blame and includes himself in it. Now, this is very interesting. Do you know why? Because if there's ever a character study in the Old Testament that you have, or you're very, very challenged to find anything wrong with, it's Daniel. <laughs> you can read through the entire book of Daniel. It's very difficult to find anything wrong with, with him. But here is Daniel putting himself squarely in the middle of the problem. And he's saying, I am part of the problem. I'm not immune from what's going on around me. You would think that Daniel would be saying, yeah, those Israelites, God, yeah, let's talk about those Israelites, okay? What they've done. What's the, you know, this is how you know that Daniel is not an American, okay? <laughs> because as Americans, it's our favorite pastime to find someone else to blame, okay? That's what we love to do. But Daniel doesn't do any of that. Daniel doesn't do any of that. He puts himself squarely in the middle of the problem, and he says, I, too, am part of the problem. Okay, and the reality is this. This is the principle here. You will never be able to adequately be able to intercede on behalf of a people and lead a community in confession and repentance unless you look to yourself and also take ownership of the fact that you have contributed to the problem in some way. You're never going to lead your small group or your church, or your family, in any kind of corporate repentance, if you are not first able to point to yourself and say, I'm part of the problem. Here at Kettleburg Church, I, if I'm going to lead you guys in, in repentance, i got to first acknowledge I'm as materialistic as the next guy. I have a tendency and proclivity to be as spiritually lethargic and apathetic as anyone else. I just need to own that about myself. But I need to repent of it and then hopefully lead the church in doing the same thing. I'll never forget, I, I was listening to Stuart Briscoe speak one time, and just kind of parenthetically, offhandedly, he mentioned the fact that, uh, that he had seen some uh, disturbing uh, trends in the American church. And I heard that. <laughs> I heard him say that. And so I made an appointment. And I went to go see him, and I said, I said Stuart, okay, I heard you say that you, you've seen, in your, in your observation, you've seen some disturbing you know, trends in the American church. And I'm part of the machinery. Okay? I, I'm a pastor of an American church. So tell me, what do you see? What do you, what do you see going on? And he said, one of the things he told me, he said, he said, in all my travels, he said, I talk to people who are my age, who are retired, who are elderly. And he, they, they each say to us the same thing. He said, we have the most discretionary time. We have the most life experience. We have the most disposable income that we've ever had. And the church doesn't know what to do with us. It's like we're completely irrelevant. And as a leader in the church, I had to hear those words. And I'd say, you know what? He's right. He's right. We need to do something about that. We need to learn how do we engage our seniors in meaningful ministry. But if, if, we, if we don't first get to this point of owning our junk then we never get to the point of, of, of correcting the problem. 
And he doesn't excuse Israel's sin. He doesn't justify it or try to explain it away. He owns it completely. And he says, we're guilty. We're guilty. He says, we have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. Verse 10. What are, what are some of the things that Kettlebrook needs to repent of? Thankfully, I'm not in charge anymore, so I don't have to answer that question. (laughs) That's not true for a minute. I do have to answer that question. And so do you. But you know what? I don't think that Troy or Ryan or the elders even know how to adequately answer that question. There's only one person who knows the answer to that question. And that's Jesus. And we need to ask him. But let me tell you, I'll bet he's got an opinion on the matter. And that if we were to ask him, he would be kind and gracious to show us what it is. Now, I know that there are some things that the American church needs to repent of and take ownership of. I can speak to those. One of the things that I think we as the American church need to repent of is the fact that we have become experts at doing the one thing that Jesus never told us to do. Have you noticed that? Jesus never told us to have a Sunday morning service. Never gave us instructions on how to do it. But we spend more time and energy going into what goes on on Sunday morning than anything else. Doesn't mean that it's wrong or bad. We just need to acknowledge Jesus never told us to do this. At the same time, We've done a quite apathetic job of doing the one thing that Jesus did tell us to do, and that's make disciples, to help people become followers of Jesus. We haven't done a really good job of that at all. In fact, they have done in-depth studies of people who call themselves born-again Christians. And when they do in-depth studies of how they spend their time and how they spend their money and their character and their, and their values and all of that, they find that there's almost no distinguishment between people who call themselves followers of Jesus and those who claim to have no faith whatsoever. No difference. It means we've somehow really missed the mark. We deserve a raspberry. We haven't done a very good job of the one thing that Jesus told us to do. Okay? You know, meanwhile, we, we really haven't done a really good job of, of influencing our world for Christ. I, I'm not sure what the exact statistics are, but I think it's something like there's not a single county in the United States today that is more evangelized, has more followers of Jesus than it did a year ago. And it's been like that for the last 20 years. We, by almost any measurement, we are not gaining ground in our world. Now, meanwhile, in the global south, the church is just exploding. Places like India and China, where there's house churches and there's, there's cell churches and stuff like that, they're just, they're just totally exploding. And one of the reasons is the fact that they actually get on their knees and they pray. When I, was in, when I was in India, the whole church got up every morning and just spent almost an hour in prayer. Okay? Now, they have absolutely nothing. They have no resources. But 
they're planting churches upon churches upon churches all over the place. And maybe, maybe they have something to teach us that we can learn from. And before renewal can ever come, we first and foremost need to acknowledge our part, our sin, and the way that we have failed to be the people that God has called us to be. Then the third thing that Daniel does is he acknowledges that God's way are right and just. Verse 11, he says, Therefore the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses and the servant of God have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rules by bringing upon us the great disaster. Upon the, uh, under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done in Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of our Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. Daniel needed to acknowledge that they were in the situation that they were in exactly because was God was faithful to do exactly what he said he would do if they persisted in their rebellion. None of this should have been a surprise to anyone in Israel what was happening. And Daniel is acknowledging the, that everything that has happened to them is just and right. God is only being faithful to do what he has always said that he would do. Now, I think the same thing is happening in America as well. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the, the sun is setting on the church in America. Something like is 50 years ago that 80% of the Christians in the world came from the West. And 20% of the Christians came from what we'd consider the global South. You know, Africa, Asia, Southeast Asia, stuff like that. Now, 50 years later, that ratio has completely flipped. It's completely reversed. 80% of the Christians in the world are now in the global South, in places like China and India and Africa, places like that. And only 20% of them come from the West, America, Europe, stuff like that. And what is happening is exactly what guys like Ralph Winter has always said would happen, is that if a people are not faithful to share the gospel to the other nations around it, then God is going to take the blessings from him. And that's exactly the situation that we find ourselves in right now. What happened to Israel literally being taken away in exile, is happening to us figuratively. We, as a church, are being taken away into a cultural exile where we no longer have influence in our world any longer. And I I don't know how long we're going to be there until we get to this point where we can say that we need to repent. We need to repent. And this, is, this should be terrifying for us because, you know what? We have almost no language for repentance in our churches today. Do you know that? If you were to, if you were to take a survey of all the, the, um, the songs that we sing in America on a Sunday morning, the top 100 songs sung in America, do you know how many songs deal with issues of repentance and confession and lament? Almost zero. But the Psalms are full of them. If you read the Psalms, roughly a third of all the Psalms deal with some aspect of lament or confession or repentance. And we, but we don't have a language for it. 
And if we ever want to find our way out of the mess that we're currently in, we've got to take a page out of Daniel's playbook here and out of Daniel's prayer book and say, what does it look like? What does it look like for a people to repent? The last thing that, that Daniel does is he uh, really, really makes this request for mercy. In verses 17 and 19, we read this. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel is asking for mercy here, to be sure. But more important than what exactly is Daniel's motive? Why is he asking for mercy? That's almost more important than what he's asking for. Why is he asking for mercy? What is his overriding concern here? What does he care about more than anything else? Not just that they would have relief from their suffering or that they'd be able to get a chance to go back home or something like that. Daniel's overriding concern is for the glory of God among the nations. Okay? Look at verses 17 and 19. It says, he says, for the sake of God. He says, for your sake, O God. Okay? Look with favor on your desolation. He says, he says, for your sake. Again, in verse 19. Okay? Because the city and your people bear your name. Daniel's overriding concern is the glory of God. Not for their own, you know, the, that they'd be relieved of all their suffering. Overriding concern is for God's glory among the nations and a concern for his name among the nations see daniel understood what was the contemporary thinking at the time is that whoever's god was more powerful then they were obviously the dominant military force in the world because the other person's god couldn't defend them or couldn't uh, you know wasn't strong enough or anything like that and and so the the, the babylonians had overruled Israel, trashed the temple, taken out everything from the temple. And so the common thinking there was, well, Yahweh is definitely impotent. The covenant-keeping God of the Israelites can't even defend his own people. And, of course, Daniel knows that's not true. And he appeals to God. He says, God, would you be merciful and would you be act not for our sake, but for your reputation and your glory in the world? And, and I often wonder, is that as we pray sometimes, is that our overriding concern? Is our overriding concern for the glory and the reputation of God among the nations and even in our own community? Or is our overriding concern for our own safety, our own security, our own comfort, our own convenience? See, when Americans pray, <laughs> those are the things they pray about. Well, there are two things that Americans pray about more than anything else. Safety and health. Do you know why we pray that for those things more than anything else? Because we value those things more than anything else. We pray about what we value. And Daniel here is not praying for those things. What Daniel is praying for is God's reputation in his area of the world. What would it look like if we began to pray and our 
overriding concern as the people of God would be his reputation in our community. I think that would change the way that we prayed. I was with a group of, just to wrap things up here, I was with a group of pastors from the Milwaukee area this past week. And, um, and I don't know if you know all that's been going on in the church in America. It's, this is kind of the world that I live in. This is the water I swim in. So I'm kind of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, ahead of the curve on these things. But there have been pastor after pastor after pastor in America falling into some sort of hot water in some way, shape, or form. It happened most recently just south of us in Brookfield. And our friend Matt Erickson from our sister church, Eastbrook Church, when that happened with with Jason at Elmbrook, he got up in front of all of Eastbrook and he did this. He said this. He said, listen, many of you know I worked with Jason. He's a friend of mine. And uh, what happened there is a tragedy. He said, but this is not a Jason problem. This is not an Elmbrook problem. This is a North American church problem. And he said, we need to repent as a church. And he led all of Eastbrook in a prayer of repentance. And he, all four services, they had people on the floor with their heads down to the ground, praying and repenting and asking for God's mercy on their church for his reputation in the world. Isn't that awesome? I'm like, they didn't even do anything wrong. <laughs> but there they are, the people of God, praying for the mercy of God on them. We need, we need desperately to recapture how to do this if we're ever going to be the people that God needs us to be in our community. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this chapter, for Daniel chapter 9. We desperately need to read this and reread this because this is a lost art in the American church. We just don't know how to do this. We don't have, we don't have a language for this, how to repent corporately and collectively as a church. But Lord, I fear what will become of us if we can't figure this one out. This is the only way back. This is the only path we have back to you. Jesus, when you rose in all of your resurrection glory, you visited the churches in the book of Revelation. And out of seven churches, out of seven churches, five of them needed to repent. And this was only several years after you had died and rose again. If five out of the seven churches in the book of Revelation needs to repent, what are the chances that we have to do that? And so I pray for all of us here I pray for all the leadership. I pray for the elders. pray for the pastoral staff that you would give us wisdom, insight, humility to just hear your voice. What are you saying to Kettlebrook Church these days? And once we hear that message from you, give us the courage and the boldness to repent. Father, we make this prayer not for our sake, 
not for our sake, but for your reputation in our community. We pray this in Jesus' name.